You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hi, this is Jim. And this is Bax. Check out our podcast, The Step Over, Liberty Ballers Podcast Network, for all of your Sixers' needs. Player analysis, game breakdowns, who would look coolest in a headband, and more. Subscribe to Liberty Ballers podcast feed on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts, and check out The Step Over, a podcast about Sixers basketball. Mostly. Welcome into Fireside Chats, Episode 2. I am your host, Michael Kist, and today I got a special treat for you. A great friend of mine, the pioneer of NFL Twitter Book and Gardening Club. He specializes in quarterbacks and late-night binges at Veets. He is Mark Schofield of Inside the Pylon and Locked On Patriots. Mark, how you doing, bud? I'm doing well, Mr. Kist. I'm doing well. Still a little frustrated over the prior evening's attempt at another round of PUBG. <laughs> the game like glitches more than anything else on earth. But other than that, I, I am doing well, my friend. Always good to be with you. PUBG works like like NFL Game Pass works. Actually works worse <laughs> than NFL Game Pass, if you can imagine that, which is just – it's crazy that there is something on the planet that works worse and is glitchier than NFL Game Pass, but there you go. Yeah, especially after they drop like two massive updates that absolutely fix nothing. But enough of our, our gaming habits – we're just waiting to get to uh, October when all the real good games drop that uh, people will load in, buildings will load in when the map starts. But You won't be a wall person, yeah. Yeah, be a wall person, be a pool person. You can do anything yeah. you want in PUBG. You just can't move anywhere right. or pick up a gun. <laughs> you know, things are kind of critical to the game. Yeah, all, yeah, all those things. So we're not here to talk uh, video games. We've already had our off-topic uh, Tuesday episode. Me and Brennan Lee Gowton uh, put that out yesterday so go check that out if you haven't but today the main topic of discussion is going to be nate sudfeld but first i wanted to let you get your feet wet introduce yourself to the bgn audience first uh since you work for so many places you want to know let people know where they can find you on social media where they can find your work well uh, the easiest place to find me social media at mark schofield on twitter as far as places i contribute it's Easy to go this way. I am one of the lead writers over at InsideThePylon.com at ITPylon on Twitter. I am, as you indicated, the host of the Locked On Patriots podcast, which I tell people is 80% Patriots, 20% quarterbacks. I also do scheme work for the score at NFL on Twitter. I do scheme work for Pro Football Weekly. I'm a contributor over to Big Blue View, the Giants SB Nation website, where I write about quarterbacks. And finally, one of the other places I write is Matthew Waldman, Matt Waldman's rookie scouting portfolio at Matt Waldman RSP 
com. And you write about quarterbacks there as well, right? Yeah, I basically all the work that I do is quarterback focused. And, you know, prior to the stuff this year, last year, I was the quarterback scout for NFL 1000 over a bleach report made that project rest in peace. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, the bulk of my work is quarterback stuff, quarterback evaluation. We do a draft guide over at InsideThePylon.com the past couple of years where I've been basically the lead quarterback scout. Played quarterback in college, um, played pretty much all my life. So I, I, I like to think I know a little bit something about quarterback play since I was a pretty bad quarterback personally. Well, I trust your quarterback evaluations more than I trust anyone else's. There's good reason uh, for that. And look, I, I know you've done radio spots in Philadelphia before, and we've talked several times, especially in the lead up to the Super Bowl, as you're the host of Locked On Patriots, as we said. But I need you to do something for me, Mark. So where did you have Carson Wentz ranked among quarterbacks when he came out during the draft? Carson Wentz was by QB2, that draft class. I had Jared Goff, Carson Wentz, and then Paxton Lynch. And my sort of relationship with Carson Wentz from an evaluation standpoint dates back well to before many people knew who Carson Wentz was. When he was playing his junior year, Going through the FCS playoffs, I wrote some pieces. My first piece on Carson once was, I believe, December of 2015. Maybe 2014, but it was well early in the process. He had one of his Carson Wentz type, you know, come from behind fourth quarter type drives where he let it. I believe it was against South Dakota or South Dakota State. One of those. Right. I think it was South Dakota State um, in the FCS quarterfinals way through a beautiful. It was either a slot fade or a corner out to the back corner of the end zone for the game winner there. And I wrote about him then. And said, you know, it was a, I wrote about it more from the execution of the drive standpoint rather than a draft quarterback evaluation standpoint. But then when that, you know, draft ended and it was into the next draft class into that summer, you know, Wentz was one of the guys I was writing about and talking about a lot in the August before his senior year. The first um, rookie scouting portfolio uh, film room series piece I did with Matt Waldman where we talk about a quarterback and break down an entire game. He and I did Carson Wentz. And this was before people were really studying him at all. I was talking about his draft prospects then. And as he went through his, you know, senior year, he had the injury and then goes down to Mobile. You know, I was kind of the one of the people sort of making the case for him when a, lo- a lot of people were sort of making the anti-Carson Wentz case. One of my favorite pieces ever was when I wrote what I called my response brief, because I am a former lawyer, where I sort of defended Carson against all the arguments people were making against him, such as, you know, he had slow footwork or he took mm-hmm. too long in the pocket or things like that. I highlighted how some of these criticisms I think were overblown, how some of them really weren't valid and how he was still going to be a very, you know, successful NFL quarterback given the right situation. And so I had him as QB2. People might say, look, you think this highly of him, are you still QB2? It wasn't a knock on him. I like Jared Goff a little bit more. I think Goff was showed more of a cleaner path to the NFL, you know, given some of the concerns that there were in place around Carson Wentz. But those are my top two guys. And a lot of people had guys like Paxton Lynch as quarterback, one of that class, or even others. But I think we've kind of shown through at least the first two years that Goff and Wentz might end up, like we saw, being the class of this class. Yeah, and it's interesting when you think about the possibilities of the way things play out. If Carson Wentz goes to the Rams with Jeff Fisher and Jared Goff goes to Doug Peterson, how different their careers might be. And that's not a knock on Carson. Scheme fit is very important and coaching is very important. Scheme fit is critical. And I think, you know, if you had asked me right after the draft, how would you rank these guys now? Just those two, Goff, Wentz, I would have flipped them immediately. Mm. You know, because you look at where 
Wentz ended up as a rookie, you know, with Peterson, with Frank Reich, with guys that have played the position, the guys that know how to coach the position, the guys that know how to approach things from a schematic standpoint to help a quarterback as juxtaposed, like you said, Michael, to Jeff Fisher, you know, and Jared Goff going there. I mean, the traits are certainly a big part of it, but then when you look at the landing spot and how critical that is to quarterback development, right in the wake of that, I would have easily told you, and I believe I said it on some shows, look, Wentz is in a much better position to succeed, you know, now given this landing spot. And to bear that out, look at the difference between Jared Goff in year one and Jared Goff in year two. I mean, you see now with Sean McVay and the spacing and all the stuff McVay does to help his quarterback, the difference in how well Goff has played. Yeah. Absolutely, 100%. I I agree. And this is why you can trust my friend Mark Schofield, folks. He's a fellow Carson Wentz truther. He knows his stuff. Now, in the same vein, and I'm sorry if I'm throwing you a curveball here, but Nick Foles, his magical preseason run, which very few people realistically saw coming, let's be honest. Do you have, because I struggle with this all the time trying to explain it, do you have any explanation for it? You know, I think, and you know, what's interesting, Michael, is think back to before the Super Bowl when you and I and your buddy Ben were doing shows together and we were on various shows together, whether it was radio stuff or doing our own stuff, and we talked sort of about Nick Foles and the run that he was on going into Super Bowl week. And I think a lot of it comes from that sort of nebulous term of confidence. And when you have confidence as a quarterback, it can be the difference between playing well and playing poorly. And I know that from experience because when you have the belief on the field that your coaching staff believes in you, that they're going to do the same things they did with Carson Wentz, you know, maybe there's some scheme tweaks and things like that, but they're going to do things like go forward on fourth down or you'll come to the sidelines on a critical fourth and goal in the Super Bowl, make the bold case, which I've never even imagined doing it myself, but asking to call you know a trick play on the goal line against the New England Patriots and Bill Belichick and your coach without hesitation is like, yeah, let's do it. Like yeah. That's the type of stuff that gives you confidence as a quarterback where if you throw an incompletion, you're not going to then look over your shoulder at the sideline expected to see you know Nate Sudfeld come in. You know what I mean? Right. And it's you know, not to go far afield here, but you look at Deshaun Kaiser, his years at Notre Dame, where every time he made a oh. mistake, every time he threw an interception, every time he made an incompletion or missed a read, he's got Brian Kelly red-faced and screaming like a madman on the sideline. <laughs> that is not conducive for good quarterback play, no matter how tough you are mentally as a quarterback yourself. And so when Foles gets into this situation where the offense gets on rhythm, they're winning some games, the playoff game, the, the opener against Atlanta, a little bit tougher, but then you get that huge win against Minnesota. And we just saw this in his book that came out about how Peterson was in the locker room watching that Pats game. That I'm never yeah. going to get, you know, they do things like they go for it, even though they're up before the half and there's not that much time left. They say, no, we're not going to just kneel on it. We're going to keep going for it and they get another field goal or whatever they did before halftime. It's the confidence when your coach shows that in you that you believe that you can play better. Pair that with some of the scheme stuff they did, some of the misdirection stuff they did, and in a sense, the execution from the guys up front. Because when you look at Super Bowl 52, you see that New England's game plan was take away the throws. Their whole approach was we're going to sink back when they go RPO, even though it was probably only like you know a quarter of the time Chris Collinsworth called it an RPO. When they did go RPO – New England's response was, we're to have our linebackers try to take away the quick throws and try to stop the run. And they couldn't do that. Yeah, Philadelphia was able to run the ball on those looks. And that really sort of got New England off kilter. Foles made some impressive throws. I mean, the throw to Clement 
that had to be put into a shoebox and Foles did it. I still don't know how that pass was completed, but it was. It was a touchdown, and there you go. I mean, so it builds from there, that confidence where you're not looking over your shoulder after mistakes because you know the guys on the sideline and the guy on the headset believes in you. That allows you to play without fear. When you can play without fear as a quarterback, you will play better. Confidence, man. It's all about the swagger, all about the swagger for Nick Foles. Okay, so we've touched on Carson Wentz. We've uh, attempted to explain Nick Foles. I I think that's uh, the the best way that you can possibly put uh, that magical run by him. So before we jump ahead to Nate Sudfeld's performance against the New England Patriots in week two of the preseason, let's go back to the beginning with Nate Sudfeld. And let's talk about him as a college player at Indiana. And as far as a draft profile goes, uh, you get this kid with great size. He's 6'6". He's got the big arm that can threaten deep and also challenge the field side with those wide college hashes. But there were obvious holes in his game. And we'll kind of work our way through as we like to do at the Scouting Academy from snap to finish. As a pre-snap and early snap processor, what was it that you saw from Sudfeld that may have impacted his draft stock in a league so enamored with big dudes with big guns in a negative way? Well, I I think that, you know, I'm looking at my profile on Sudfeld right now, which I had him as my 19th ranked prospect in that class, okay? (laughs) So I didn't have him that high. I... But to be fair, you know, he was just two spots behind Christian Hackenberg, okay? So you can look at it that way. That being said, look, when you looked at him, arm strength was one that did sort of stand out. I liked the strength to make throws to every level of the field. I liked how he could challenge narrower throw windows at the intermediate level of the field, which is something you don't see a lot with college quarterbacks. They don't really, in college offenses, with some exceptions, challenge the middle of the field, challenge between the hash marks, challenge that intermediate level of the field. You see so many collegiate offense where it's smoke screens, it's hitches, it's curls, and then it's go routes. And it's everything's mm. along the sideline sort of because it's safer there. It's much tougher to throw over the middle of the field or hit that intermediate level. But Sudfeld was able to do that. He showed really good anticipation on throws to the sideline where he timed up his footwork and his decisions with breaks by the receiver. And that gets you to your question there, sort of the mental process, the pre-snap to post-snap. When you see that time in sync up, when you see the footwork and the decisions from the quarterback sync up to the route concept, you know that the quarterback has that confidence we were just talking about with Nick Foles, and he has that understanding of what he's seeing from the defense, and he he can match up his expectations pre-snap with what he's now seeing post-snap. So those are some of the things that really sort of stood out to me. And finally, his ability to throw and move and keep his eyes downfield. You know, that's something that you see a lot of younger quarterbacks, when they get pressured, when they get under duress, when they have to move off the spot, they drop their eyes. They're trying to mm. see around them in the short-term, short area rather than extending the play and keeping their eyes downfield so they can make a throw downfield, which in so many cases, you see big plays come on those scramble drill situations. So as a quarterback, it's incumbent upon you to keep your eyes downfield. A lot of young quarterbacks don't do that. Sudfeld showed the ability in college while at Indiana to do that. What about his downfield throwing? Because we saw some crazy bucket throws from him uh, this past week. Was he as accurate down the field in the college level than what you're starting to see from him now? Or was that like a big leap for him? Yeah, I don't think he was as accurate in college as we're seeing right now, particularly with some of those sort of like bucket throws that we saw against New England last Thursday night. I mean, the weakness category I had on him struggles with accuracy on throws to every level of the field. And, you know, I'm one of those believers that accuracy, it's a must-have. It's a non-negotiable. I'm going to pull over to the side of the road right now and record a video saying, look, quarterbacks, 
accuracy is non-negotiable because you have to have it. Okay, so you either develop it or you don't if it's a weakness of yours in the college game. You know, and I noted that even some of his more impressive plays were throws that could have been put in a better spot for the receiver. The fact that he's now making these bucket throws speaks to his development, you know, his work ethic, and it gets to some of what we've been talking about. Obviously, he wasn't with, you know, Philadelphia his entire NFL career so far. He started with Washington. Yeah. But when you talk about ski fit and landing spot, the development that we've seen from Sudfeld, you can attribute it perhaps to, you know, what Jay Gruden was doing with him. But obviously, you know, his work in Philadelphia as well. And so, you know, the accuracy, the improvement there is something that I wasn't expecting, but it's great to see from a developmental standpoint. Overall, when you looked at him as a draft prospect, what did you see for him as a potential ceiling? And what situation did he need to be in to reach that ceiling? You know, when I sort of looked at him, I said that because of his arm strength, because of his size, He's going to be in an NFL camp. He's a developmental project. But if given the chance to sit and learn for a season or two, he could develop in a long-term backup in this league. In the most ideal of situations, he could be a future starter if everything breaks right for him. And that's right from my one- to three-year projection on him. I had him as a seventh-rounder, undrafted free agent guy. I'm not sure. Did he get drafted or did he was he a free agent guy? I forget how that ended up. But you know, I, I looked at him as somebody that in the right situation, in the right developmental track – he could be a, a future starter in this league, despite the fact that I ranked him as QB 19. It's just because his path seemed to be a little bit steeper than other guys. But to this point, we've seen the path be almost ideal or as ideal for him as you could have imagined. Yeah, and he was drafted in the sixth round, in the middle of the sixth rounds, which is okay. not a yeah guaranteed path to a roster for sure. I mean, it's basically the same as going in the seventh or going undrafted. Right. So, yeah. But yeah, I, I agree with you on the uh, on the landing spot issue there. And and we, when you okay, so let's move ahead here because that game against New England, the the coaching staff has been enamored with Sudfeld and nothing but glowing words about him from Frank Reich to John DeFilippo to Doug Peterson and none of us in Philly, like all of us that covered the Eagles, and I've talked with several people about it, they're just like I don't. I don't see it. I don't, I don't know why they love him as much as they do. We don't know like how much of it is smoke. And then you see what he's capable of. And you look at that game against New England. And I'll just take this from the article that I wrote about him because right now he's leading, you know, all quarterbacks in preseason deep passing and take that with a grain of salt. Obviously it's preseason backups are going to get more reps and, and all this stuff, but no other quarterback. So Josh, Joshua Dobbs has thrown 10 deep attempts. So has Nate Sudfeld. That's the most in the preseason so far. But the difference is that Nate Sudfeld has completed six of those. There was one drop. Uh, he's had a 70% accuracy rating, which leads all preseason quarterbacks. And he's had a 143.8 quarterback rating. He's thrown for nearly 50 more yards than any other quarterback on deep passes alone. Is that a sign for you as far as someone that has taken the next step? Or is that just a guy that's winging it when he sees cover one, middle of the field coverage, he's got wide receivers making plays for him? How do you, I guess, I don't know, evaluate that and come away with a conclusion? Or is it more of a wait and see thing? Are you encouraged by it? How encouraged are you by it? I'm very encouraged. And let's separate the production from the execution because sometimes right. people get so wrapped up in production and preseason games that – you fail to sort of identify how the player, whether it's a quarterback or a wide receiver or whatever, gets to that level of production. It's one thing 
if for a quarterback, he's just throwing jump balls and his receivers are winning them. And it's like you look at it on paper and, oh, man, he's putting up huge numbers. But the execution is poor. You know that that's not going to fly once we get into the regular season. Now let's look at what Nate Sudfeld's done. Because as you said, Mike, there have been times when, look, he sees cover one. He knows he's got boundary verticals. He's going to take his shot. But it's not like he's just throwing willy-nilly jump balls, YOLO balls up there. You look at, for example, touchdown he threw against New England when they were working from left to right. I forget. I think it was the third quarter. Maybe it was the fourth. It was in the second half. And it's that vertical run along the left sideline where you see that cover two look. You as a quarterback have to hold that safety in the middle of the field as long as you can on his landmark, on that hash mark, so he can't get over and help on that vertical route, which is his job. So Sudfeld does a tremendous job with his eyes, freezing Eddie Pleasant in the middle of the field before making a perfect throw on that. That's the execution part of it, which gets to his development, which is on a very solid curve to match up with perhaps the ceiling that I identified for him before he was drafted. And I'll put it this way. As the host of Locked on Patriots, I do a lot of Patriots radio shows, Patriots podcasts, things like that. I was on a show on Monday. Uh, Patriot show with two good guys in this industry, Steve Austeri and Tim Murphy, guys that I like. I'm on their show a ton. And we were talking, you know, law and wide raging conversation. One of the topics that they asked me about was not just Nate Sudfeld and how good he looked against the Patriots, but whether Nate Sudfeld will be a guy that teams would consider trading for either at the deadline or before next mm-hmm. draft, including the New England Patriots. And right. so when you start getting questions like that from <laughs> – Teams that aren't, you know, the Philadelphia Eagles or, you know, non-Philadelphia-based shows, you know that people are starting to pay attention to what this kid is doing. And he's starting to draw attention and people are starting to buy into his development. And it's not just happening from within the Eagles organization. So that tells me that there is definitely something here. And obviously, Patriots fans were all very skittish about life after TB12. But the fact that Nate Sudfeld's getting thrown into that potential mix should tell Eagles fans something about this kid. What would you feel like if the New England Patriots threw out a trade for Sudfeld? What do you think the value is out there? Like, what would you find acceptable as far as we, we traded a fourth or a third or a second? What would be like, hmm, that makes a lot of sense, and I'm good with the value. What would be that limit for you? I think right now, fourth round, um, okay. you yep. could talk me into a third. I mean, let's let's be honest. You know, a New England fourth round third. pick, it's going to be a late third. Like, yeah. it'd be a late third, so I'd be fine with that. I, I, I don't have New England's draft picks in the next draft in front of me. Now, the issue, the interest that becomes, the closer we get to the next draft, then we're going to have to factor into play what the next draft class is going to look like. And as somebody that studied 39 quarterbacks in next year's draft, anywhere from three to eight games on these guys, because, you know, I, I, I'm not mentally impaired or don't, I'm not a, don't have a sickness or anything. But as somebody that's done that, I can tell you that there is a lot of uncertainty about the next draft class. And while there are guys that could certainly develop and take similar type leaps, at least, you know, on a college type scale, not an NFL type scale there's a chance that this next draft class does not pan out. It's not like the previous couple of classes where you have, okay, well, you know Sam Darnold and Josh Rosen are going to be in the mix or you know Deshaun Watson's going to be. There's a lot of uncertainty. And there are guys that might, like Justin Herbert, the kid from Oregon, he might not come out. Some of these good kids might not come out. And so if we get into, say, trade deadline time or even into next winter where we're pretty clear that this is not going to be the type of quarterback class people were hoping for, Sudfeld's value might really rise where you're seeing teams say, you know, a third, maybe maybe a second, but it could happen. You could see that happen. Obviously, a lot of things would have to go and break that way for that to happen, but it could. Given that and understanding that that's a year down the line for Sudfeld as he develops more, would you feel confident in like because, you know, Nick Foles took took that Nick uh, in the game 
against the New England Patriots where, where Big V let up a big pressure on him and there was a fumble return for a touchdown. If Nick Foles, for some reason, wasn't ready to go week one, he I think he's you know he's going to be. And it looks like that Carson, Carson Wentz is on pace to be ready for week one. Let's just say hypothetical alternate universe that both of them aren't. Do you feel confident that Nate Sudfeld could run this offense and be successful to even if it's to a to a lower degree? I think so. I wouldn't have any hesitation if I were a member of that coaching staff. I would not be intimidated or scared if I were an Eagles fan to see Nate Sudfeld out there week one. Now, I think it's a situation where he could be spot starter type guy for this season. Right. If Carson doesn't get back and Foles still has this lingering shoulder issue and it's a week one, one to two type week type thing. I don't think there's any hesitation to run, you know, Nate Sudfeld out there, and you know maybe he gets you sixty percent of Carson, maybe seventy percent of Foles, but mm. given everything else this team has in place, given the defense, given the talent in the run game, that's still enough to win most games in the National Football League. This is a tremendously, tremendously talented roster. You know, I think there's a reason why if you look at any sort of power ranking that has merit to it, the Eagles are sitting atop right now, and it's not just because yeah. they're coming off a Super Bowl win; it's because you know, one to fifty-three, they're one of, if not the most talented team in the league, with a tremendously talented coaching staff, and so I would have no hesitation doing that. If it's worst, absolute worst case scenario, and Carson has some huge setback and falls, is oh, it's not a minor tweak; it's a his everything's dislocated and needs multiple surgeries. If both of right. them are gone for the season, then I think you may be going a different direction. But for yeah. a spot starter type role, Nick Sudfeld, I have no problems running him out there, and. You know, obviously Philadelphia. I think it would it would stun me. It would absolutely stun me if Foles. I mean, excuse me, if Sudfeld isn't a part of this, you know, fifty three man roster because of that. Absolutely, yeah. We're not going to let him go foolishly like Washington did. And if he did have the chance to play for one or two games, if he needed to, and he played well, all the better for his uh, trade potential or in their long term future at the backup quarterback position because their quarterback room right now, man, is absolutely loaded. And uh, I, I I love it, man. Okay, Mark, man, it's been. Fantastic chatting with you about the Eagles quarterback room. Uh, you have anything else for the uh, gentle listeners here? Um, well, I can tell you probably what I'm working on right now, um, there you which go. is a whole bunch of stuff. Like you said, I'm writing for a bunch of places. So I'm working on something um, for the score about the rookie quarterback class, this year's rookie quarterback class and how they've been used schematically. I got something going up over a Big Blue View in the next couple of days or so on Sam Darnold and how his rookie season has panned out. Um, done some stuff recently over at uh, Matt Waldman's RSP on Matthew Stafford, looking at full body manipulation, Sam Darnold, winning the cat and mouse game. And, you know, we're just into August, man, and it's already busy. But busy is fun. Busy is good. Busy keeps the people entertained. And we're all just biding time until Fallout 76 drops. Let's put it that way. <laughs> Absolutely. He's Mark Schofield at Mark Schofield on Twitter. Follow him. Follow his work. You will learn a lot. Mark, thank you so much for joining us today. Mr. Kist, always a pleasure. I will see you at Casa de Mitch in a couple of hours. We'll see you later for the BGN Radio Episode 3. We're going to be previewing the Eagles preseason game. Remember, we all we got, we all we need. Fly, Eagles, fly. Hey everybody, it's Neil Patel, Editor-in-Chief of The Verge. I host a podcast every week called The Verge Cast with my friends Paul Miller and Dieter Bone. We've got a rotating cast of characters from our entire site, which is about technology, how it impacts culture, and how that is all a big cycle that causes us to have a wide variety of feelings that you can listen to every Friday. We've done over 300 episodes in the six years since The Verge has been around, but you only need to listen to one, the latest one, to get caught up on everything in tech news. Vergecast is on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, everywhere else 
else you listen to podcasts, check it out.